Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a cool show today, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Ki Hui Kwan, the star of the most aptly titled movie of the year, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Now, you can say a lot of things about this movie, but you can't say that you've ever seen anything quite like it before. It's an eye-popping reflection on the power of kindness and love to heal the world's problems. It is exhilarating, and it mixes and matches everything from family drama and tax problems to martial arts and metaphysics into a whimsical story that moves at the speed of light. The result is a singular film that milks intentionality out of its madness. Now, what exactly does all that mean? Well, stick around as I chat with Ki Hui Kwan. You know him as Short Round, the plucky kid companion to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and from a role in the cult comedy adventure The Goonies. We'll talk about why he chose to return to acting and everything, everywhere, all at once, after a 20-year break from Hollywood. First, though, let's meet director Brett Morgan and producer Deborah Eisenstadt of the film Moon Age Daydream, an impressionistic look at the life and work of iconic artist David Bowie, now playing in theaters. Morgan's film emphasizes the restless spirit that defined David Bowie. It also has a pretty good beat, and you can dance to it. Well, most of it anyway. Let's meet director Brett Morgan and producer Deborah Eisenstadt of the film Moon Age Daydream. Questions have arisen, such as who is he, what is he, where did he come from, is he a creature of a foreign power, is he a creep, is he dangerous, is he smart, dumb, nice to his parents, real, a put-on, crazy, sane, man, woman, robot, what is this? Are you there, David? Are you there, Mr. David Bowie? Ah. Mm -hmm. I'm an alligator. Mama, Papa calling for you. I'm the space invader. I'll be a rock and roller bitch with you. All people, no matter who they are, all wish they'd appreciated life more. It's what you do in life that's important, not how much time you have. Or what you wish you'd done. Life is fantastic. I want to start with just a little bit of background. You met David Bowie in 2007 to discuss another film project. What were your impressions of him then, and what was the project? Well, my impressions have been so colored by spending the last seven years immersed in Bowie. So with that knowledge, reflecting back on that original encounter, I could tell you that he was incredibly present, mm. um, like locked eyes and just present for each moment. And that was something that I started to observe going through all the material, that in every moment I observed him in, he was there, sort of trying to experience everything in life that he could. That was the thing, I think, that surprised me most about the film. I have read everything. I have seen everything that was available to be seen about David Bowie. But the optimism that comes out of this film is something that I didn't really anticipate. And I wonder if it comes from your personal story, which mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a heart attack that happened at the beginning of this process. And I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but I would imagine that that colors everything that comes afterwards when you have a near death experience. 
and you're making a film about someone who talked about life a great deal, it has to color what goes in the film. It colors everything. I mean, I think all form of biography is autobiography. Mm. Um, You do a film on Bowie. I do a film on Bowie. The difference is it's going to reflect you. Mine's going to reflect me. I happen to be possibly at the perfect state of mind, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. to embark on a David Bowie journey, which was I had a massive heart attack on January 5th, 2017, flatlined for a few minutes, um, was in a coma for a week. A year to the day David died, I was in a coma. And when I came out of that, I began my deep dive into Bowie. And to your point, Bowie continuously throughout his career talks about themes related to aging, mortality. I mean, this wasn't something he arrived at later in life. You're aware of a deeper existence. Are you there, David? Are you there, David? Maybe a temporary reassurance that indeed there is no beginning, no end. You find yourself struggling to comprehend a deep mystery. In fact, the first event in this journey for me was sitting in Tony Visconti's studio in uh, New York, and he was playing me stems from Signet Committee. And at the end of the song, when David cries out, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live, Tony ISOed the vocal, and David was sobbing uncontrollably. And what was he, 19 at that point? Yeah, 18, 19. Yeah. And he was singing like a man who was on his last day on earth, who didn't want to go. And so that level of appreciation for the brevity of our time on this earth was there from the beginning. And so coming into that, having had a heart attack, trying to figure out how to recalibrate my life, um, David was nursing, nursing me back to health, and there's no way I would have been receptive to that messaging had I started the film in 2010 or right. 2012. You're listening to director Brett Morgan and producer Deborah Eisenstadt on The Richard Krauss Show. Their film, Moon Age Daydream, is in theaters now. Deborah, you are a producer on the film, an advisor to Brett. You're also Brett's wife. You're married. Tell me about that time it would have been scary it must have been well i don't want to well, put words in your mouth um shocking mm-hmm. obviously i mean when i first got the phone call i was like well maybe it's a little heart attack but when i got to the hospital he was in surgery and i saw the doctor's face and basically at one point they they had a social worker there a a, a religious person there they said start making phone calls he is the sickest person in the hospital and uh, he's going to be, have to be put on a machine because his heart is not functioning. And they were going to put him on this thing called the death machine, which is an ECMO, which pumps his, his heart was not mm-hmm. pumping right. And, uh, you know, I, I was dealing with our kids and what had, and he was in the middle of a TV show. Yeah. And I had to figure out what to say to the, and I was just in this terrible position where I, I couldn't give up hope that he was going to live, but... At the same time, I'm making these phone calls. I have family flying across the country. It was very chaotic. And did you notice a change afterwards? <laughs> I, well, and, and that, but I say, but I, I say that because I, I had cancer, and yeah. after that was all said and done, everything was different for me. It changed my attitude about virtually everything that happened in my life. And I wasn't making a film about yeah. that. I was just self-reflective. So there, there had to be a change. It took a while. Yeah. Deborah, tell him what happened. I mean, he went right back to work. 
Tell, tell them what the dog, the soon as my eyes open. I mean, I have the video <laughs> to back it, but as soon as he woke up, he's like, I got to get to work. And, and the doctor was like, well, I don't think that's possible. Um, but basically, because the doctor didn't know exactly what his line of work was, right. he was kind of given the green light. And I was like, no, no, please, no. But he went right back and he actually did this pilot that got picked up. Um, I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't know how he did it. He was like a zombie, but it, it, it did, after that, I think things started to sink in. And in some ways, I feel like maybe that was part of his recovery, mm-hmm. like doing, having it, he had to get up and he had to keep moving after a heart attack. But um, then really David Bowie, I watched him ingest all this material, which took two years. Ever since I was 16, I was determined to have the greatest adventure that any one person could ever have. Well, let's talk about just some of the, the specifics of this, because it's incredible. I've seen the film. It can only be described as immersive. It is not a documentary. It's an experience. But I've been reading here that you ingested 5 million assets that were shared with you by the David Bowie estate. That has to be overwhelming. When you're starting a project with that amount of material? Do you remember how many CAT scans I had for my he brain? He kept thinking he was losing his memory because... Uh, I couldn't he, keep track of right. all this material. And it was, he was taking notes, but he, it was, it was very difficult. And I just, it was watch, it was so hard to watch mm. him struggle with just trying to, but then I think everything that needed to surface from what he had looked at really did come, you know, it was the cream rises to the top yeah. from all that material. And he, it, it was a miracle watching the process of him. It was, it was, it was Herculean what he, what he had to do. do. Um, Where do you even begin? Do you just open the first box and start with that? You start at the very beginning, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the very good place to start. Um, <laughs> I started by collecting all media, both at the archive and around the world, right. and assembling it chronologically so that when I viewed all the raw media, I can try to observe whatever through line would organically emerge. Right. And with David, that was not difficult to identify. Uh, he speaks about transience um, from the beginning to the end of his career. Uh, there's one of, one of my favorite Bowie interviews is from the most unlikely sources uh, e the E Entertainment Channel yeah. did an interview with him in '92 when he was just b- beaming with love for yeah. Amon. And there's a point there. She said, "What's your through line?" And he goes, "Well, most people think it's cha 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 changes, but really it should be tra 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 transients." <laughs> and the key difference to me between changes and transients is there's a spiritual component to transients. Change to me sort of on the surface implies changing genre, changing your fashion. Transience is a deliberate move into uncharted waters. It's a, it's a way to sort of that he was able to both apply to his art and to his life. You're listening to director Brett Morgan and producer Deborah Eisenstadt on The Richard Krauss Show. Their film, Moon Age Daydream, which I really loved in case you can't tell by the interview, is in theaters right now. I have never felt 
in all my years as a David Bowie fan that he was uh, chasing after commercial success, maybe a little bit with Let's Dance, but he was kind of open about that. But I've never felt that that was the end game. I've always felt as though he was really just morphing into the next thing that that lit his brain on fire. And as a fan, I was willing to take that next logical step. And because of all those changes, I really do think that in a lot of ways that shaped me. It made me unafraid of different things and it introduced me to Jacques Brel and it introduced mm-hmm. me to uh, soul, Philadelphia soul mm-hmm. music and it introduced me to uh, electronic music and all the stuff that I probably never would have found as a kid growing up in a tiny little town in Nova Scotia otherwise. You, me, Deborah, yeah. and probably most of our listeners had the same experience. Yeah. I mean, he was a rite of passage and a cultural passport and um, really expanded all of our horizons. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot as I try to contextualize David's career is the courage and the audacity to be willing to give up, to sacrifice your audience, your fame, your security, all of that just to scratch a creative itch. I know David wanted to sell records. It's not like he didn't want to sell records, but they had to be on his terms. And when I think of the last 40 years of popular entertainment, it's really hard to think of anyone who made that turn dozens of times. I mean, it's just incredible. I never believed the Berlin story. I don't want to say I didn't believe it. It just sounded like kind of a a, a mythology related to going to Berlin and, and starting to reinvent a new form of language. Then I listened to the stems for low and every stem, you listen to the keys. The the stems are, just so people know, the stems are the individual pieces that that are then mixed together to form the song. Correct. And one of the things David did in in Berlin was he he abandoned traditional songwriting techniques and he would have each musician go into the studio and just do their own thing. And then he would, him and Tony and Brian would piece it all together. And when you hear those songs, that doesn't sound possible, like Sound and Vision, you're like, no, that's a song. That's not, that's not a construction. And then you hear the individual notes. And as, as I was turning them on in my, my, on my Pro Tools, you listen to put one on, you put the second one, and you're like, there's no way. These don't connect. You put the third one on, you're like, no way. And then you turn them all on, you're like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but that was Bowie. He was like a magician. I mean, I don't know how to say it. People say he's otherworldly. I just spent two years, seven years going through every piece of known media. And honestly, I don't know if there's a better word to describe him because it just seemed nearly impossible to be mortal and pull off what he did. It was like people would come into the office and they would say, how would you describe David Bowie? And I'd say, well, take this deck of cards, throw it on the ground, watch me throw it on the ground. David does it and it's a castle. And you say, I don't, I don't believe you, do it again. And he does it again. And you're like, that's not possible. But there was just, he lived such a magical existence. And one thing you said about um, the commercial period that I found absolutely revelatory, for me at least, making this film, was that David set his sales in 1982, 81 for mainstream success as a challenge, Mm -hmm. as another, not a chance to see if he could sell records because he wanted to see what it would be like to have that sort of experience. And as he later would reflect upon it, he got 
he hung out there a little too long on that trip and uh, got a little too uh, into the sort of uh, the trappings of fame and success to the point that he says in the film, I don't know if I need to create anymore. Maybe I'll, maybe I'm just an entertainer. The reality is almost anybody who is playing an arena at that time has continued to be Vegas entertainers for their careers. David went and in 95 completely blew it all up and created some of the most adventurous recordings of his career. You're listening to director Brett Morgan and producer Deborah Eisenstadt on The Richard Krause Show. Their film, Moon Age Daydream, is in theaters right now. It is interesting in the film, which, as I said earlier, is immersive, and it's not a traditional biopic. And I loved, uh, uh, in the movie, these splotches of color that you use. As I was watching that, I was thinking, this my take on it is that I'm seeing... Uh, the synapses, hmm. David Bowie's synapses firing on one another and, and looking to create something new and, and different. And you found a way to visualize that in a way that I thought was fascinating and in a way that I've never seen before. If I had that description, my animator would have saved about four months of his life. <laughs> <laughs> that was very, very well put. Um, I kept calling it lemonade. Right. I was like, I and I kept, I had to, we had hired an animation team, and I tempt that scene to um, Fantasia, and and I I was trying to talk about it with them, and I was like, well, you know, it's 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 lemonade. It's like because the song is sound, sound and vision, and I was, and I remember at the end of a call with this the this team of animators, they said they were kind of being a little snotty. I mean, they go, well, we don't know how to, maybe lemonade means something to you. It means nothing to us. So I had to find an artist who could embrace that. And ultimately it was looking at Stan Brackage films. Mm, yeah, yeah. That gave me the inspiration to, when I saw Stellar, the Stan Brackage film, I thought that's Bowie's Berlin music. That's the filmic equivalent of Bowie's Berlin music. I was hoping you were gonna tell him the Silly Boy Blue. Do you know about the Silly Boy Blue Black Star connection? He'll love that. He'll love that. Okay. Mr. Greatest Fan in the world. Okay. When I started the process, I sat down to listen to all of his music with the lyric sheets from first recorded song to the last recorded song. And on my first day, I came to the 67 song Silly Boy Blue. A song that maybe, I don't like to analyze David's lyrics, but maybe uh, about Buddhism and reincarnation. And um, at the end of the song, as it's fading out, you hear this, I heard this sort of melody that sounded really familiar, but I couldn't place it. And I have a terrible voice, but it sounded like this. Ooh. And I was like, where is that from? Yeah. Where is that from? Where is that from? Two weeks, three weeks later, I arrived at the end of his catalog and I put on Black Star. And in the middle bridge of Black Star, I hear, ooh. And I had the stems. So I isolated the stems, put them on top of Silly Boy Blue, and it was a perfect fit. In the movie Moon Age Daydream, as an homage to that moment, I take Silly Boy Blue, and I match cut it so that it rolls into Blackstar. Nobody knows there's an edit there. Right. Nobody knows that there's, it's not acknowledged where the sources are from. But here's David at the very beginning of his career, having a conversation with himself at the end of his life. Blackstar, another song about reincarnation on some level. 
Um, and uh, that to me was incredibly important for understanding that it wasn't a search towards nirvana. He consistently came back to the same themes and kind of finished the sentence. That is an unbelievable story. And I just love that the circle closes, you know, with it from the very beginning to the very end in a way that only one artist could have pulled off. And that's David Bowie. One other quick little one. Um, I, his archivist shared a story with me that I found. This is early in the project. And she said, um, when David was doing the Lazarus video, he called me up one day and said, do we have the leotard that I used in the Station to Station album? And she went and pulled it out and he put the leotard on during the Lazarus video, um, which the meaning or the symbolism behind that is in the back cover of Station to Station, David is drawing the tree of life in that outfit. Yeah. And it's that outfit that he decided 40 or 50 years later to wear for his final performance. We could continue this forever. I'd like to. I'd like to too, <laughs> but uh, you're being taken away. But thank you so much, man. What a pleasure to meet you. Thank so you. Nice oh, meet sure. you. You've been listening to director Brett Morgan and producer Deborah Eisenstadt on the Richard Krause show. Their film, Moon Age Daydream, is in theaters right now. Right now, I'm going to tell you about the most aptly titled movie of the year. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is a wild and woolly adventure where the quirk factor is turned up to 11 and literally anything could happen and does. It's a full-tilt boogie story about a laundromat owner in trouble with the IRS who was sent off to another dimension to battle an evil spirit. I loved it. It's in theaters right now. Check it out when it comes to your local theater. It's really great. And I have one of the stars of the film visiting with me today. His name is Ki Hui Kwan. Now you know him as Short Round, the plucky kid companion to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and from a role in the cult classic comedy adventure, The Goonies. We'll talk about why he chose a return to acting in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once after a 20-year break from Hollywood. Ki Huey Kwan joins me via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Well, uh, my good friend, Jeff B. Cohen, a.k.a. Chunk from the Goonies, uh, once said to me that no actor willingly gives them acting because it is the greatest profession in the world. Uh, and yeah, I mean, when I was little, I was very fortunate to be in a couple of really memorable roles. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I'm being honest, as I got older, uh, and really began to pursue acting, uh, there was just not a lot of opportunities for me. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I found myself at a, at a crossroad where do I want to continue down a path where I don't see a future for myself or do I want to take the unknown road? Uh, and I chose the unknown over the known because uh, when all you do is just sit around and wait for the phone to ring, uh, not a job offer, but an opportunity to audition uh, for, 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 an, uh, for a role. And especially when back then, a lot of the projects that did featured Asian characters, they were so one-sided, they were so marginalized, they were so stereotypical. And a lot of them were like, you know, one or two lines, uh, or if you're lucky, you'll be featured in two or three pages. I've auditioned for a lot of those mm -hmm. uh, and it just, it was just, it was, it was disheartening. Uh, it wasn't fun anymore. Uh, and, and, and that's why I stepped away and it was a very difficult decision to make. Uh, so I went to film school. 
Uh, and after I graduated, I started working behind the camera and I was content doing that mm-hmm. until 2018 when a little movie called Crazy Witch Asians came out. And I remember watching it three times in the movie theater and I cried every single time. I cried because it was a, a great movie. It, it was it was it, with great characters, but I also cried because I had serious FOMO. <laughs> You know, uh, I, 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 I so wanted to be up there on the screen with all my fellow Asian actors. And really, it was really then that, that the idea of getting back to my roots started taking place. Um, and so one day I call up an Asian friend of mine um, and ask him if he wanted to represent me. And this is after decades without an agent. And he said, yes. Two weeks later, literally two weeks later, I got a call about this project, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And I read it, absolutely fell in love with the script and in particular, this role, Wayman. I thought it was written for me. Uh, And I wanted it so bad. Well, you've talked about how you felt that that the role of Wayman was written for you. Tell me a little bit about why, because if people haven't seen the movie that are listening to this, it's a little hard to explain, but you're actually playing more than one Wayman. You are playing him in a couple of different universes, and he has vastly different uh, personalities in each of these universes. And what is so beautiful about this performance is how almost in the middle of a sentence, sometimes you change from one Wayman to another and you can feel it in your face. You never get lost. You always, as an audience member, know which one you're you're uh, looking at. So tell me, why did it resonate so much with you? Well, it, it, from the very, very beginning, I knew it was important that the audience is able to distinguish the different versions of Wayman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're so and they're vastly different. You're listening to Ki Hoe Kwan on The Richard Krause Show. Find his new film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, at a theater near you. And the reason why I, I, I felt that this role was written for me is because, you know, looking back uh, my life experience, all those years of, of working in front and behind the camera. And, and, you know, I mean, honestly, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the experiences, you know, you know, uh, in my life that were ups and downs, you know, peaks and valleys. And, and you know, I always say a, a full life is a life full of ups and downs. And certainly I had it. I had that. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, I, you know, when I was very young, uh, my family decided to flee Vietnam right after the Vietnam War. So when I was little, my family was separated. Uh, and we were very lucky to be reunited here in America. Uh, so, so just, I mean, when I, when I look back upon my life, I felt that these three different versions of Wayman was me at different parts and in, in, uh, at different, different times in life and different aspects, different phases of my life. For example, uh, you know, when, 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 when things were tough, you know, I would, you know, uh, uh, go to Wayman in this universe for his optimism for his 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 empathy, for his kindness, uh, when I when I was struggling to stay in the business, you know, I would look to the Alpha Wayman, for you know, for his you know, for for the fight in him, because uh, he's not you know he doesn't give up, he fights and and he's very mission driven, uh, and then 
uh, one of the universes that I love very much was the it was the movie star universe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so all of that, I mean, th that's part of my life. And and honestly, had had this role been offered to me ten or fifteen years ago, I don't think I could have done it. Uh, but but being where I am now, uh, you know, I felt comfortable, and I was able. I mean, I literally I poured my entire life into these three different characters. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it, it's just been a really wonderful journey. Uh, well, it's such a wonderful performance. I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed watching it so much because unlike so many movies that we see today, I had no idea what was going to happen next. And I have said this before. You can say a lot of things about everything, everywhere, all at once, but you can't say that you've ever seen anything quite like it before. So I wonder what it was like when you're reading the script for the first time. I heard that you were crying, that you were laughing. There was a lot of emotion that came out of you. But did you understand it on the first go around? It must have been very complicated. Uh, it was. Uh, I was warned and, and from the very beginning. Uh, and I was told that in order to fully understand the script, you need to go watch Squid's Army Man, which is the first, mm -hmm. the Daniel's first feature. Uh, and I remember watching Swiss Army Man and I laughed, I cried, I was totally immersed in the movie. And I said, man, if these directors can take such an outrageous premise about a corpse that farts throughout the entire movie and, 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 ha and, and have me in tears, yeah. I think they can do anything. And when I sat down and I turned the first page, I, I was overwhelmed with emotions because one, I don't think I've ever read a script that features a Chinese family the way it did in this movie. Uh, it was beautifully written. Uh, and, and as not knowing what the story was about, I kept turning the page and turning the page. And still, this family was still in the script, mm -hmm. unlike I think, I think I said earlier, unlike the scripts that I read when I was in my late teens and my early 20s. So it was really refreshing. And for some reason, I got it. I understood it. You know, it's, I, yes, it's a crazy science fiction drama with, you know, comedy and it's action packed. But at the core of it, it was about this family was, that was that's trying to be together, to, to be connected with each other. Uh, it, during difficult times. And, and that was what I gravitated towards, uh, was the emotional aspect of, the, of this script. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. You're listening to Ki Hui Kwan on The Richard Krause Show. His film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, is playing in theaters and now on streaming services. Well, what I loved was not only the, did it not, I mean, it made my eyeballs dance. I loved that. Just watching it, it was, was so much fun. I loved the performances, but for me, what I took away at the core of it, that it's about kindness and, and, and being nice. These things that we seem to not value as much these days as maybe we once did. Uh, and yet, uh, at, by the end of this movie, You've had this wild ride, and there's this very simple, but I thought very potent message at the end of it. Just just be nice, and everything will be okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why I love Wayman so much. You know, he, you know, he not only is he an optimist, but he's he also really believes in empathy. Yeah. And 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 especially, I mean, empathy 
it, you know, you know, it, you know, creates a pathway for understanding and acceptance. Uh, and I certainly feel that, you know, we need it more than ever, especially what, what everybody has gone through in the last two years. I understand it's been difficult for everybody. Uh, so it, that, that's why, you know, it is my hope that when people go watch our movie, uh, you know, they can escape the real world for a couple of hours and then walk away from it feeling like they, you know, they, they, they just witnessed a great conversation being had a conversation about family, love and connection. And also, I mean, most importantly is, you know, the message, you know, like you said about kindness, but also, you know, that we are all entitled to be uniquely ourselves and to feel just simply, you know, that's enough. One of the things that makes Waymond uh, uniquely himself uh, is that he has an unusual weapon. He has a fanny pack that he uses in a very skillful way uh, to fight off. So you've got it right. <laughs> I love that so By much. By the way, this, so this is the fanny pack that I brought home to practice. Right. No. So uh, tell me about that. Apparently your wife didn't love that you were practicing at home. Well, this fanny pack fully extended is 67 feet long. And can you imagine, I mean, I was swinging this thing everywhere I went in my house, to the kitchen, to the bedroom, to the living room. And, and I, I was constantly hitting things. I was breaking things left and right. Uh, and so, yeah, so my wife wasn't too happy. She kept saying, honey, go into the backyard and practice. Don't practice in the house. But I mean, I would be watching television and I would still be swinging it around my neck, around my shoulders, because it's such a it's such a, a difficult style to master. Mm. Uh, the particular style is called Wushu Rope Dart. And it's something that I've never learned before. I studied Taekwondo. Uh, so, so, you know, there was, there was a lot of pressure for me to deliver because not only is it a great action sequence, but also when you do a movie with Michelle Yeoh, she's freaking the queen of martial arts movies. So you really need to step up and bring your A game, you know? So yeah, luckily I've had all that time to, uh, to train. Well, it's fantastic in the movie. Uh, I think we're almost out of time here. I just have one question here. And I read a quote from you where you say uh, that people will come up to you on the street and say, you're the OG. You paved the way for us to be here. With the success of Crazy Rich Asians and Fresh Off the Boat on television, uh, with the success of this movie, which is already doing very well in theaters, and, and so many other things that are showcasing Asian culture, um, do you feel like the OG? Do you feel, do, how do you feel about that when they say that to you? You know, you know, um, uh, yes, over the, over the, over the years, I've met a lot of Asian talents working in Hollywood and, and they do come up, uh, they tell me I'm the OG, um, uh, and they, and they thank me for paving the way for them to be here. And honestly, they are also the one that paved the way for my return. And I'm so grateful to see, um, you know, for the, for the Asian representation that we've been seeing for the last few years. Well, it obviously makes you emotional. And, and I understand that because this is something that you dreamed about, I guess, for decades. 
And, and here it is manifest in front of you. And I think that last answer that you just gave me and the emotion that came out of you uh, proves and shows how important representation is on screen. I, I'm, I'm so I'm so bad at this. Every time I talk about it, I, I get emotional. <laughs> and and you, you, you know what? You're absolutely right. You're listening to Key Hawaii Kwan on The Richard Krause Show. Find his movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, in theaters now. If, if my return to acting says anything, it is a testament to how important it is. Not just Asians, but every group of people to be represented in entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it's until you see it, you still can't believe that it is you. It also could be you up there on the screen. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, my, I'm so happy, but I don't wanna look back, I wanna look forward. Absolutely. And, and I wanna be optimistic and I'm very inspired and I'm very hopeful where things are right now and where we're heading. Uh, I know there's still a lot more work to be done, uh, but with all sustainable improvements, you know, it always happened gradually. Uh, and yes, I'm, 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 I'm very happy uh, and I'm very grateful for, uh, for how things are going. Now you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. Evelyn, I'm not your husband. I'm another version of him from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. No time to help you. James Hong, that must have been exciting to work with him. Such a legend. And to be able to spend time and work with him must have really meant something. Yes, and, and if you want to talk about OG, that yeah. is the ultimate OG. Uh, you know, we, we share a lot of stories about uh, working in Hollywood decades ago, especially him, because he started in the 1950s. And, and he was telling me stories about how his name is James. But people back then always refer to him or call him you know, the Chinaman, the Chinaman, get the Chinaman on the set. They never called his name. That was a story that he shared with me. And I remember hearing it and, and I was very emotional. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it's James is not a difficult name to pronounce, you know? Uh, so, I mean, again, I think he shares my sentiment. Uh, he said, you know, he waited 70 years for us to, to be here. To, 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 you know, for the, for the representation that we have been longing for, you know, so he waited much longer than I, than I did. You know, I waited only, only, you know, 30, you know, 30 something years. He waited 70 years. Um, and so to be able to work with him in this movie, it, it's truly inspiring. And that guy's 93 years old. And it's incredible to see that his passion for acting it's still burning bright and strong after being in this business for 70 years. And that is incredible. That was Ki Kawai Kwan. Check out his movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. It really is great. Big thanks to him. Also, a big thanks to director Brett Morgan and producer Deborah Eisenstadt of the movie Moon Age Daydream. Find that one in theaters right now. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, 
and we'll talk to you again soon.